Welcome to the Pete on Software podcast, where we program with passion. This is the podcast that discusses technology, the business side of software, and the tech people that drive our industry. And now, here's your host, Pete Shearer. Hi, and welcome to Episode 9 of the Pete on Software podcast. I'm recording this on Sunday, March 2nd, 2014. Today's episode is kind of cool in how it came together. Back in Episode 6, I talked about the James Altucher book, Choose Yourself. Before I cover the book, I asked if anyone knew of anyone that I could interview or if they themselves would have a topic for an interview for a future show. Awesome beyond measure, James Altucher actually tweeted my podcast out to his 98,000 followers. One of those followers was today's guest who heard my appeal and offered himself up to the show. My guest today is Craig Schwartz. Craig is a marketing and product planning executive in software companies ranging from startups all the way to multinationals. In those roles, he's worked closely with software development teams as he defined, launched, promoted, and managed products at all stages of their life cycle. Without further delay, here's today's interview. Okay, I'm here with Craig Schwartz. Uh, Craig, how are you doing? Very good, Pete. Glad to join you. Uh, Thank you, and thanks for being on the show. Mm -hmm. So how did you get started in marketing and product management? Why did you choose to make this your career? Well, I'll uh, let me define the two, and I think that'll help show where my interest was. I, sure. I look at marketing as the promotional activities to help generate sales opportunities. It's not the sales side. And on the product management uh, side of, of a business, it's defining features, target markets, pricing a product, competitive analysis, and so on. So I've always liked electronics, uh, and that led me into a technology-based uh, education. I have a double E as my undergraduate degree, and I took programming courses in that process. But in a summer job with AT&T, where I worked in switching centers, what interested me most was the business side, and I went and got an MBA because of that. And I now really enjoy marketing and product management because it touches all parts of the company, uh, all of the departments, as well as the marketplace. Okay. Uh, so how do you stay current? So there's a lot going on, uh, I'm sure, from the time, especially with marketing. I mean, not only the tech industry is changing, but you know, there's, there's new ways to market to people all the time. How do you make sure that you're always doing what's the latest and best? You're right. It's, it's really both technology uh, and, and marketing that are changing. It isn't just one or the other. So on the technology side, uh, obviously news, uh, participating in events, meeting with high-tech professionals. On the marketing side and product management, uh, there's a a lot that is now being written in those uh, areas. So I do a lot of reading. Uh, I I participate in online and uh, in-person events with speakers. And then I test some things myself that would use the tools that are now coming available, like video or uh, use of webinars or uh, various types of um, online content placement. Mm-hmm. And through that, my, my skill set evolves as I get experience with it. Okay. Uh, before we discuss the marketing and business aspects of software alone, uh, do you have some insights that you can share with us about how programmers can effectively work with product managers in the marketing side? You know, basically uh, someone like you in an organization. You know, that's my favorite part of doing product management is working with the development side. And, and I think it's because the people in those, on those teams are so down to earth. It works or it doesn't work. You know, there's no song and dance. It's just a really uh, positive experience. And I do want to see the, the relationships work well for both sides. So here's some points that, that I, I would suggest. First is it's really a teamwork process, a two-way dialogue and a constant dialogue mm-hmm. between the product people, the product managers, the marketing side, and the developers. Um, a lot of 
a lot of uh, programmers, for example, are either introverted or shy or very focused on what they're doing. And they've got a lot to offer just by getting into a dialogue, and I encourage that. Second, I I would say that when they're given functional specs of any kind for a product, they need to make sure it dives down to the level they need, not, not, not the programmatic level, but the definition so that they can be precise in what they generate and, hit the, and really hit the mark. I also encourage developers to ask about product direction. You know, you know with uh, programming skills that if you knew now what was going to possibly be asked for in a product two iterations from now, you might design the, the platform a little differently to give you that flexibility down the road. Mm-hmm. And, and so it helps to talk with the product people and get them thinking about, well, is this going to integrate with something else in the next version? Or is this, um, you know, this going to have to support a different uh, mobile platform down the road? Those kinds of things can make your job better later by doing, having that information earlier. Um, I also encourage developers to suggest things as far as what could be in a product. And, and I've had extremes. I've had um, engineering execs or managers say, oh, I know exactly what this product should be. I really don't even need to hear from marketing. And that's kind of a weird uh, situation, but it can, it can happen. And that's too far over the, to the one side. But equally, marketing shouldn't only uh, be the developers uh, of the ideas and the specifications because they don't realize everything that's possible technically. So a programmer saying, you know, if you, if you ever thought of X because I can do A, B, C, D within X, they may say, man, I never had ever given that an idea. That is terrific. So I definitely encourage that. And then, and then the other things regard scheduling. Uh, don't let feature creep delay the product releases. Yeah. A, lot of, a lot of times there's a small uh, element of a product. It doesn't have to be sophisticated. It just has to be there. And somebody who feels very responsible in programming that capability is trying to get every aspect of um, functionality into it as possible, and it's overkill. And as a result, it can impact your schedule. So you know, don't go too far past what you need so you can get something out in a reasonable time. And similarly, if the schedule is not going to be met, the sooner the product management or marketing teams know that, the better. I've I've worked with engineering managers who come to status meetings on a biweekly basis, and they'll walk in the room on the day something's due, and they'll say, we're going to be two weeks late. Yeah. And I'll say, man, if you told me that at the start of the week, I could have adjusted a couple of announcement schedules or something else that was coming up. So just keep that dialogue going and and be be reasonable about it. I I understand not wanting to share bad news too soon. And and people are very optimistic. And and you you say, no, I'm going to make the date. I'm really trying. I think I can make the date. But if there's any chance of it moving, just try to be open about it. Yep. Transparency across uh, the organization. And it sounds like you're you're definitely promoting a dialogue between you know the programming side and then the more you know artistic creative side with with marketing or some of those professionals, and, and just yes. and just being honest and open. Yes, both ways. I hope. Yeah, definitely. What do you think developers need to understand about personal branding? So not just the product itself, but you know branding themselves and work successfully with companies uh, and on their own. Well, in in both of the cases you describe, which is in a corporation or as a freelancer or, or their own business. In both of those cases, the, they need to define quality as the right way. And quality in the Philip Crosby school of uh, quality is goodness of fit. So are you delivering what the requirements ask for? 
and that's that's number one because that's the definition. And, and the example I like to give in the in the quality conversations is for some people, quite frankly, a a low end Kia or Hyundai is high quality. Let's say you're a college student or a recent grad, and you just want a car that's affordable, easy to park, uh, doesn't use a lot of gas, can seat your f- three best friends. You know that doesn't have to be an upscale vehicle. Now, for somebody who wants to impress people or is in the car a lot, and now he's, he or she's thinking, I, I like a Lexus or you know, the high end uh, of some other brand, quality takes on a different meaning. So it isn't necessarily how fancy or sophisticated something is. It's how, how well it fits what the goal was. So quality is something that has to be met. And then the good communication, whether you're dealing with a company or dealing with a client, communication is important. In the case of being a freelancer or totally on your own, now personal branding takes on another uh, attribute because you've really got a business brand to uh, establish. And for that, um, I would recommend a few things. First, if you, can, if you specialize in a niche, whether it's a particular type of technology, maybe it's um, a software as a service or it's mobile apps or you know, whatever, or it's database-driven uh, applications, you know those are are areas you can start to stand out. If if I looked at two candidates to provide me a service, and one it was obviously just all database guy, and another guy was oh I can do anything. I'd say if I, if it had a database need, I'd say I'm going to the guy who's obviously the specialist. You do that with your doctors, you would, you know, you do that in business too. So if you can niche yourself, that's good. And that and then maybe within a vertical market, maybe your target audience is well teenagers who like to communicate with one another. And so you come up with tools for that. Or it's uh, the construction industry and you know how how to uh, develop programs for contractors to use and then for um, irrigation specialist use whatever it is those the, the vertical market is another good niche um, I'd also suggest on the branding side is don't price yourself on a poverty model don't do work on spec it it's so common in marketing freelancing and programming freelancing for prospective clients to say you know if you could just give me a break or just do this small project because we're going to have a lot of work for you in the months ahead. Mm-hmm. That's not fair to you. Uh, there's no guarantee that subsequent work is coming more times than not. Unfortunately, it doesn't. And it also suggests that the service you provide is not worth a lot. And the ones, the people who need it, uh, appreciate it and understand it. So, so don't, don't have a branded model, which is you're the low price supplier, I guess is, is my thought. And then I would also suggest for branding is to collect references and testimonials from satisfied clients. Uh, that's a great way to let others toot your horn. And, and it, it's the kind of thing that makes, makes us all more comfortable. If you look at Amazon for a book review or Yelp for a restaurant review, that means something. If you say, hi, that guy, that, that place had 50 reviews and 80% are positive. Not everyone's going to be thrilled, but that's a pretty good batting average. You know, that's, that's the advantage of testimonials. Uh, from happy customers and their and references from happy customers. Where they well, say, you, yeah. You know. How do you go about doing that? So it's you know you mentioned earlier even about you know a lot of programmers may be introverted. Is it just as much as it just go in and say at maybe at the conclusion of a contract or if you're uh, in a long term contract maybe you're a couple months in? Do you just approach someone and just say, hey, listen, I'd be interested in having you. I mean, do you use the word write a testimonial for me or, or give me a testimonial for my work or how do you how do you ask for that? How do you go about getting one? 
That's a very fair question. And first, you do have to ask, typically. Uh, at the end of the project is usually the best time, immediately at the end. If, if you've satisfied the customer and they're obviously uh, uh, happy with the work you did, then that is the time to ask them, you know, may I ask you just one thing? Would, would you be kind enough to, to provide me with a testimonial that I could use to promote my business? Now, in some cases, they'll say, yeah, you know, I particularly like blah, blah, blah about what you did, you know, that you, that you were right on time or that you were here every day or that you, whatever, the, whatever really struck them. But you might have to draft something for them. That's, that's kind of the step that sometimes um, gets missed. Uh, a lot of times it, your clients are just too busy or they're not good writers or they forget. So if you say at that point, can I draft something for your approval? Mm-hmm. And, then, and then they'll say, sure. And then draft something that you know it really puts words in their mouth in a way that you feel is reasonable for them and highlights what you think uh, you know, they would say about you that you want to, ha- to bring out. And then share that with them through an email, whatever, and say, is this fine? Can I go ahead and, and use this and repre- you know, represent it as coming from you? It's also that moment when the project finishes is also a good time to say, is there anyone that you know that you're friends with professionally or personally who might benefit from my services? And they might give you a name. They might give you a personal introduction, which is the most important thing, to be able to have them make a call or email somebody and copy you and just say, hey, you know, I, I used Joe for, for this project, did a great job. I, I was thinking you might want to talk to him. And then that's, that's the time. In the middle of a project, people are sometimes uh, uncertain because they, they haven't seen it. It's, you're not done yet. They, they don't want to brag about you till they know you really delivered. Yeah. But, but it's immediately at that point that it makes sense. If for some reason you've got customers from the past and you miss doing that, by all means, go back to them. But the time to try to reach out ideally is immediate. Okay. So, you know, you talked about a little bit about branding in the corporate world and the, the uh, individual just on your own world. Do you have any kind of examples of maybe some software professionals you know of or worked with who've gone from a corporate uh, to maybe having their own business, starting their own thing? I do. Uh, one of them that's uh, probably the, uh, a very common kind of transition that, uh, that you're uh, listeners might identify with personally is is an individual who was running a technology team, a programming team, in a vertical market niche vendor. Who pro- the vendor provided services and was getting into the product side by automating some of those services. And they had a couple of very large prospective clients who wouldn't sign on because the features that were coming didn't quite exactly match the way that company, the end user company, did business. And the president of the vendor company didn't want to customize work for individual clients. So, so as a result, those prospects walked away. Uh, my colleague saw an opportunity there and left the business that, had, that was really a service company with a cookie-cutter product. And he went out and approached the prospects who had, who had passed on working with the vendor. So there wasn't any conflict of s- stealing a customer. Mm-hmm. And he offered to create the products they wanted on a custom basis. And in one case, he did a remarkable job, so much so that the uh, client was very generous in, in saying the following. He basically said, look, I bet there are other companies that could use the product that you've just created for me. And I know because you've done it for me that it's really mine to control, but I'm willing to let you sell it to other companies with the simple caveat that if you ever enhance the product, that I get the enhancements for free. 
Yeah. Well, what a win-win situation that was. And so he has now gone on to, to build his own custom programming business, looking at whether he actually may have a product that can be duplicated now into multiple, uh, into multiple accounts. That's cool. So, you know, I, I know you're a staunch believer that one of the things a new business needs to do is confirm that they do have a viable product. In this case, it sounds like this guy knew he had a viable product because you basically had a customer asking for it. So uh, short of having something land in your lap like that, how do people find out if their product or their idea for a product is, is viable in the market? That's the key. And I appreciate the uh, opportunity to give some, some thoughts on that. So, so let's look at it in three parts. The first part is the product idea creation. And I would point out a number of key uh, elements to that process. First, filling a demand is more crucial than creating a demand. And what I mean by that is if you think you've got an idea for something that everybody would want, but there's no interest in it, you're not going to have the kind of success, no matter how innovative you are, as if somebody said, came to you and said, I really need a product that can do X. Once the, now the demand exists, and it's a matter of whether the demand is large enough to worth, and worth your time, but at least filling that demand is going to give you a leg up over just inventing something or coming up with an idea. So, secondly, want beats need. And I've written on that very subject. I, the, the most extreme case for that is cigarette smoking. Um, and I'm not judging smokers, but I will tell you, and they would agree, that smoking isn't something they need. It's something they want. Mm -hmm. Okay. So, um, so you look at a market, and I've seen a lot of people turn out products and then say, I can't believe people don't get it. They all need it. Yes, but for some reason, they don't want it. Either it's not a priority for them, it's not an urgent problem they have to fill, or it's not something they have a budget for. So, so that you have to look at whether there's a, an interest and appeal, not just a need for something. Then once you get into the product and, and you look to uh, introduce it, is it intuitive to use? And as we talked about earlier, less is more. Simple beats comprehensive. If you looked at... Uh, fairly uh, complex applications. It'd take Word, uh, Microsoft Word, uh, or Microsoft Excel. Mm -hmm. Those products are extremely powerful, but most of us, 90 plus percent of us business users, only use 10 to 20 percent of its features, if yeah. that much. And so why would you, starting with a product, worry about those other 80 percent of the features? You want to you make it simple, intuitive, and, and um and, and something that all of your time was invested in, in, something, in aspects of the product that were going to be key to their acceptance. So that, that's the category of idea creation. The next, I guess, would be the platform. In terms of uh, uh, finding out if your idea is viable is, is picking the platform that you want to uh, build on. Um, the, I like uh, software-as-a-service applications that are web-based because, first of all, your customers are always on the latest version. That mm -hmm. is so important if from a support standpoint, maintenance, uh, features standpoint. Uh, number two, it's, it's a lot easier than selling upgrades to a new version. You basically can encourage customers to stay with you, pay a monthly fee, for example, and knowing they're always going to get the newest version. And then if, if you're looking at something like um, a tablet, uh, you know, are you going to target the Surface or are you going to tar target an iPad? If you're going after mobile apps, is it, is it an iPhone? Is it Android? Is it actually Windows, which still has some life to it? Um, and then, uh, you know, how complicated is it going to be for you to maintain the software at a current level and still be able to support somebody who maybe didn't upgrade their, their uh, operating system? Mm -hmm. so, the, so platform selection is, is a key. 
And then the finally, I would say, Pete, is getting early users to validate your idea. Initially, uh, a customer, you could have a customer who's your beta account, as, as we all call it, you know, obviously, in the development world, you know, where there maybe is no revenue, but, but you have to be 100% certain that they're really going to test this thing solid, solidly for you. So you know you've got something that works. You get some feedback on whether the features are of value and appealing. Um, and you can see if you left anything out. Uh, at that point, you need to be able to get two or three paying customers. And that's, that's where the rubber hits the road. Before you even can say you've got a business, you've got to have found initial customer group. And you may not even have incorporated or you know, made this a very de- detailed business model yet. But just get, get a couple or three customers who are willing to pay. And, uh, and use the product to prove that, that there's an interest in it from a commercial standpoint. Okay, so let's, let's assume that you know, I've got a product, I've got maybe found one or two people, maybe I have a, a beta group, and maybe I even have some paying customers. Now it comes time to promote it to, to a broader audience, maybe even a global audience. In order to promote that, do you feel like anyone has the ability to be a successful marketer? What kind of traits you know, are they looking to have or enhance? Uh, and can you learn that kind of thing? Or is it one of those... Those deals where just the great ones are born uh, and the rest of us have no hope. It's a little of all of that. And, and I'll, I'll answer the question first by commenting that in the marketing world, it's probably the one area where more people think they're experts just because they see commercials on television and, uh, and feel they can, um, they can come up with their own concepts for promoting products. So, so there is more of a tendency in the marketing world for everyone to feel they can do it, whereas uh, you know programming requires special special training and accounting requires special training. Um, every aspect of marketing, whether it's events management, social media, website development, has a, they all have learning curves to them. Now the logistics parts anybody can do. You can you can quickly learn from books or webinars how to put up a web, WordPress site, how to blog. Maybe how to um, introduce your product through telephone uh, Q and A or whatever. So for that part, it is pretty much anybody. Generating effective content, uh, having a web structure that works, so your prospects understand what your product means to him or her, and then takes the de- desired action you want. So for a website environment, that would be called conversion rate. Um, that's experience based, and your skills improve as you do it. And your skills improve as you measure what you're doing so that you can make on-course corrections. There are best practices for how to do those things, uh, but often there are several ways that are right ways. There isn't just necessarily one right way. So if somebody was to take that step on their own, they just need to be in a learning mode, not, not feel they already have all the answers and continually uh, gain experience. Finally, it's probably the creativity side. That depends a little more on the individual to come up with maybe a cool feature or a valuable video script that really works uh, or some kind of good uh, tagline or slogan or headline uh, or twist of a story in in telling uh, a product's uh, value. Um, Some of that is innate in the person, but I would simply just encourage people to give it a shot. People who don't consider themselves to be creative often have some really good ideas. And some of uh, my technically-based friends are still um, very insightful on stuff. So I, I don't think it's an impossible barrier. Is there something that's like basically the, the Bible of uh, marketing or something like that? So if I was trying to, to learn these things, is there one book 
that I might want to go get or one thing that I might want to read or view or, or whatever to kind of at least have an idea of what I want to look at? I think if you were to go on Amazon and pick the category that's of interest to you, something would come up, you know, things would come up that are very popular. Uh, general marketing kinds of things are, uh, you know, books from uh, Seth Godin, for example, are very good at, uh, at the uh, macro level. Mm-hmm. They don't get in, he doesn't get into the, uh, the micro level on, on actually implementing, but he gives you a sense of why your products need to stand out, you know, the nature of the, uh, the content and the customer pull as opposed to a vendor push and those, uh, you know, and those approaches. Um, there, are, uh, there are several authors, I might be able to send you some names to support that, of, uh, who have written books that are very good on website design. And they have established themselves as focused there. So there's no one marketing book that is a Bible for all of the areas of marketing. But each of those areas has its own strength. Social media has some authors that will also jump to the top. Okay, it makes sense. So, you know, right now, the startup culture is really popular. You know, with the app stores, like every developer can go home and and quickly make themselves into a little one-man development shop. So as they're trying to market those things, is that old school kind of the funnel menta- mentality, the funnel strategy of, you know, get a lot of awareness, generate leads, turn those leads into conversions as you move down the funnel? Is that still the way to go about that? Or is there something else that, that's going on now? Well, no customer goes from never having heard of you to suddenly being a raving fan in a matter of minutes. So they have to be exposed to your off- offering. They have to develop that awareness and an interest and then act on that to try your product and proceed to become regular users. So, um, so yes, the, the model you just described is still human nature. And it's, it isn't that the business has changed because of the Internet or cable TV or anything. It's, it's just the way people are. In essence, to go from a suspect, which is where you think the person should be interested, to a prospect where they show some interest, to a customer where they've actually bought something, to a fan where they're excited about what they've used, that is still a cycle they go through. And it can vary based on the product, whether it's a short cycle or a long cycle. Okay. Um, what about social networking? Is there, what are some ways that we should be using social networking to just you know, get a Twitter account for your product? Or is it maybe a Facebook fan page? Is it uh, not do that at all and, and circle around some other direction? What, what role should social media play in a young brand or a young product? On the social media side, if your product or service is for consumers, and it's a B2C uh, product, then it deserves a Facebook page without question. And there's a lot of marketing you can do within the Facebook world, whether it's ad, you know, advertising related, of course, um, event announcements, uh, if you put on webinars or have uh, offers and so on. So that's definitely a starting spot within the social media context. If if you're a B2B company selling two businesses, then your website becomes the most important part of uh, the social environment in that blog posts are a great way to establish credibility and to differentiate yourself from others in your space. And that goes back to a little what I said about a niche. If you're, if you're in a particular area, maybe even a one blog post a week that talks about that area, not necessarily what you're doing, but what you know about that market, um, establishes uh, expertise and lets people that find you online get comfortable that you know what you're doing and that they should work with somebody like you because you understand their business and, um, and have something for them. So, you know, we talked about, so you got some social networking aspect there. You talk about the value of a website for a business. Should the marketing efforts of, of the kind of shops and, and 
companies that I'm describing, should they be more than that? Is there any value or at what point is there value at getting out maybe into the physical world of marketing, some of the more traditional, I don't want to say even billboards, but like some kind of physical advertisement or maybe even TV commercials, radio, stuff like that outside of, you know, the internet. It's going to depend on the nature of the business and the market. Are you serving a local community? Is it businesses of a certain type or size? Um, is If it's consumers, is it anyone anywhere in, in the U.S. or worldwide? But a couple of things that business that entrepreneurs can think of right away when they get past the social networking that we talked about a moment ago is is the following. I would say partnering is one. Partnering not in terms of a business partner who owns half your business, but in terms of joint marketing. Mm-hmm. For example, getting another business to promote your product or service as a complementary thing to what they do. Maybe it's an add-on or an extra uh, capability where they might get a commission or part of the sale, or you just cross-promote to each other's database, and and that uh, and there's no money that. It changes hands. I would look for related Twitter posts, other people's blogs, and articles other people have written on the internet to find, you know, like-thinking vendors and connect with them. Because social media, more than a sales tool, is a relationship-building approach. And uh, much the way you and I connected, Pete, it was because of common things we were doing in the social media. Yeah. Now, partners, joint marketers might mention your product in, their, in your next post. They might connect you with others offline and say, hey, you know, Joe, you should really talk to Mary over here because she needs something like what you have. And uh, for her, uh, for the audience, she supports. Uh, or they may become candidates to resell for you. Also, if you offered a white paper or uh, posting an article in a LinkedIn group, uh, if you're B2B for sure in a LinkedIn group, or through others who might do it as a guest blog post or, uh, or on blog post, uh, I'm sorry, article posting websites like eZine, then, then that, that also provides some marketing for you that can generate inquiries and contacts that you can build up. Okay. In, trying to, in terms of reaching people or having some people find you, uh, you, know, you mentioned, again, the, the website portion. For SEO, you know, that was something that you hear a lot. Uh, you know, people are, well, you got to drive SEO. You got to do this with SEO, SEO, SEO. Uh, is that, you know, there are a lot of people I know, especially developers, who uh, kind of see it as snake oil to a certain amount where, yes, there is the the availability. You want to make it so that search engines can find you and they rank you appropriately. Uh, but, you know, how much of that is actually important? How much of that is snake oil? Just people buzzwording, trying to get some some marketing contracts? Well, that's a very reasonable reaction, and I'm very sympathetic to that view of it. Um, so-called online marketing service providers have damaged this process by trying to game the system to get their clients ranked high on search engines. And Google figures out the tricks. It's There's actually constant cycles of people trying to do certain kinds of techniques, whether it's getting as many link backs as you can to your site, regardless of the quality of the site it's coming from, um, whether it's using a certain number of keywords in every article and how to bury it in different places for also uh, to impress Google. But that, that stuff gets uncovered and it gets undone. And Google's had over the last several years, and I use them as the starting point here because they're the dominant search engine. Yeah, sure. Um, you know, they have had some uh, releases of their uh, search engine algorithms that have been exclusively designed to undo this underhandedness. So the person I, I respect in this area is Google's own Matt Cutts, and he, and he is the most visible uh, of, the, of the management 
of the company on a day-to-day basis. Uh, and if uh, he, he'll appear frequently at, at uh, events. He, he has uh, video podcasts. He's got, uh, he gets quoted in articles. And, and if you look at the pattern of what Matt constantly says is write good content and don't worry about the rest. Yeah, and I, and I agree with that. If you include the right keywords in the text that you'd use for online content, but write it for the person and not the search engine's benefit, then you know you're going to, regardless of the amount of traffic that come through organic search, you will certainly impress people who find you, however they find you through a referral or on a, some something else you did, and then the website will be performing that way. Just to, to trick people into coming to the site. And then letting them down isn't buying anything. You want to impress them when they get there. There's, there's a, uh, a lot of credibility that you're looking to build on the website. And if, if they read something there that just doesn't make sense because you, you've been silly in how you've worded it and it's not how a human being talks, then you've defeated the purpose. Do you, have, do you think there's value in Google AdWords? Speaking of you know, generating some, you mentioned yes. organic traffic, but AdWord traffic as well. Yes, there is. But, but you, you'll want to look at the, um, at the AdWords tools to see what, the, number one, what the volume of traffic awards will generate. Number two, to see uh, what your cost would be to have those ads clicked on. Um, and if you do that, and I would say if, if you're in a B2C world, you can try the Facebook advertising, keyword advertising, and that, well, it'll, it'll actually place place your ad in front of people by demographic. Yeah, demographics. I've heard uh, Amy yes. Porterfield, I think, talk about that quite a bit. Yes. About, and the, uh, that's, and that's pretty cost effective. We've used that. We've even used that for, and and, um, and I know that um, we use that even in a corporate B2B situation, because if we were trying to sell, let's say you're trying to sell to contractors or you're trying to sell to attorneys or you're trying to sell to, you know, um, uh, you know a particular um, vertical, um, you know, those people have identified their careers mm-hmm. on their Facebook profile. And so when, remember, those ads show up when on the pages that they use, not necessarily the on, on whatever they're looking at, it doesn't have to, the page they go to didn't have to be about what you are. Your ad will still show up because of who's looking. So, um, so that's the interesting thing. Um, they don't have to be going to us to look for software on Facebook to find your ad. Is, is, is the bottom line. It'll show up because they are uh, in the construction business, and and that can generate some connectivity for you. But um, certainly, back to your question on Google AdWords, it's definitely effective. But you've got to you've got to do the numbers. You've got to see. Uh, is there going to get enough? Is it going to g- generate enough eyeballs to be worth my time to put it up? Is it cheap enough, so to speak, that when they click on it, you know, only a certain percentage are going to convert to customers, and is that going to be good enough for me, or will I have spent all my money on those clicks compared to the people that actually sign up? But you do want to be careful. If uh, there, there's a lot of keywords that really are ambiguous. And they mean different things to different people. And so some people may search for what you've got and you're not really what they're looking for, but they'll click on it because they'll see an ad come up and they'll be curious. And in reality, you've paid for that. And that's not a, uh, it's not a suspect, much less a prospect. Okay. So, you know, talking about these, these potential prospects, and you definitely mentioned before about measuring, do you have any kind of simple tools or resources that the listeners can have that help them track their sales process? This is a really interesting time to ask me that question. What the a product I would have suggested without question as a very economical because it was essentially free was high rise from 37 signals. 
I would start with that as 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 a um, as customer um, management system, a CRM system. However, as many of your listeners may know, uh, Jason Fried just announced that Thirty Seven Signals is going to change its focus to only be a base camp. Yeah, and so he's not sure. If they're going to, in the interim, they're looking for, for vendors to buy the other products from them to keep them alive. And they're not sure themselves at 37 Signals if they'll allow new customers in the interim period for products like high rise. You know, they don't want to expand a market they're not looking to support until it finds a new home. So um, uh, that would have been ideal because it's really the fundamentals of a, what a CRM system should be without the expense. Uh, there's a lot of products that do CRM uh, on both the desktop and SAAS models, and you can find them for sure. But um, go for something simple and free right now until you've got such a large database of customers, like over 100 uh, prospects and customers that you're trying to work regularly, where you want to have other um, you know, advanced features built in or multiple users accessing it within your company. Okay, so you know, you mentioned there, like, you know, using free tools and stuff to get to maybe a hundred customers, that's starting to sound to the point where that's a lot for someone to do, even a one-man shop or whatever. What point would a small company want to bring in someone like you or or hire a full-time marketing person to just, you know, live in their company uh, to cover this kind of work? And how do you know when it's the right time to bring in, you know, a permanent FTE professional marketer? Well, first, if a company's a one or two person operation and you've landed your first three customers and you, uh, you, expect the, the market is quite large that you're really not, you know, if you were a, a small custom programming shop, three or four customers at a time is plenty. You're not going to necessarily bring in a full-time person to bring it to market or sell new accounts because you can't keep up with the workload if, if that happened. But if it's the kind of product or business, uh, maybe an online tool that thousands and thousands of customers or pro- uh, companies are prospects for, then once you know it's viable, once you've got those first initial paying customers to have proved it to you, then adding a, a marketing or salesperson or a combination person on a full-time or part-time basis might make sense. As for me, if the assignment, uh, you know, my focus is for companies that are really at a $2 million or higher revenue rate who are established in corporate entities that have ongoing product, ongoing uh, marketing, or even if they're just launching, but they've got VC funding and they're ready to start ramping quickly, then I can help them potentially either on a full-time basis in an ideal situation or on an interim or two-day-a-week basis uh, so they don't have to hire a full-time vice president of marketing until, until the business can support it. Okay. So what kind of things are you working on right now? What do you got going on in the kind of irons you got in the fire? I've been taking on projects uh, in both marketing and product planning areas um, where companies want to assess a market potential or uh, want their website basically reformulated. Um, and I've been speaking to groups of various sizes, uh, executives and other industry people on how to generate more marketing and sales um, success through uh, the integration of those two uh, departments within their companies. One of the things that I've that I've been doing that is just a, an aside, but I, I think we all have our hobbies and special interests. My son and I created a website called improvingsports.com. And unlike the news and rumor sites that you get for ESPN.com and 
Cox Sports and FoxSports.com. Um, you know, we just we take the top five top sports in America, which is college and pro base basketball, college and pro football, and Major League Baseball. And each week we make a suggestion on how the rules or the structures of those sports could change that would make them even better. Um, and it was quite uh, fun for us to see that even NBC's Bob Costas responded on one of our ideas and oh, nice. uh, encouraged us to that he hadn't thought of it uh, either and was going to research it a little further. So that's just something else that we took from scratch and we've been building on the side. I don't know if it'll ever have commercial value, Pete, but it's been uh, it's kind of been a uh, uh, an area that we're both big sports fans throughout our lives and it's it's a way we kind of participate besides just being spectators okay, that's awesome so how can people get a hold of you if they want to get in contact with you or they want to just find out more or maybe hire you or whatever well my professional website is geckojones.com g-e-c-k-o-j-o-n-e-s.com and my email is craig c-r-a-i-g at geckojones.com all right awesome well thanks very much for your time it's been very informative and i know i've learned a lot and i'm sure my uh, listeners have learned a lot I, I'm glad I could be of any value to uh, to people either in corporations or starting on their own. This is it's always an exciting time when you're looking in a in the world of uh, high tech. Well, Craig, great talking to you. Thanks for being on the show. All right, you're welcome. Big thanks again to Craig Schwartz for reaching out to me and for coming on to the show. He gave us a lot of information, and I know that companies that start with just tech people can sometimes lack in the sales and marketing department. So I'm hoping that a lot of you will get a lot of value from Craig's advice. My pick of the week this week is Solo.im. If you're a solo founder, then Solo.im is the mastermind group that is a support network of single founders with the same problems that you have. Unfortunately, this isn't very useful if you're just thinking of being a founder, but if you've taken that step, then this group could be for you. Membership is free, and to quote their site, the Solo.im community is about helping one another, so our businesses can profit. The Solo.im currency is contribution. No contribution equals no membership. That's all for this week's show. If you know of anyone that you'd like me to interview, or you yourself have a topic to be interviewed for, drop me a line. Also, if you know of any really cool picks for my picks of the week, throw those at me too. I'll make sure to give you some credit, and you can find me on Twitter as at PeteOnSoftware, or on my blog at PeteOnSoftware.com. Thanks for listening, and see you next time.